if you look at the the greatest bass players in the world, part of why they're so great is that they can they can imbue the audience and 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 imbue the music with so much emotion and that's what's ultimately getting to you welcome to episode 98 of the bay shed podcast my name is ryan roberts Stop by www.lemurmusic.com for everything you need for the double bass. Lemur Music is having a store-wide sale for the holiday season with 15% off the store's entire inventory. Stop by the website, check out their collections of sheet music, bass accessories, etc. Use the promo code EARLYBIRD, all one word, EARLYBIRD, to get 15% off everything you need for the double bass. The sale runs until November 25th. Lemurmusic.com uh, what else is in the works? The Bass Shed Academy is still in the works. Um, I am sorting through all the the tower of paperwork that needs to be done to uh, you know get a nonprofit off the ground, which is absolutely no joke, <laughs> and it's so frustrating. I don't know. I don't know if you folks are maybe good with this and doing the administrative stuff. Um, I'm not. I have very little patience for it, and so. Dealing with this and dealing with the nonprofit, this aspect of the nonprofit is quite, uh, ironically, quite taxing for a company that will be tax exempt. <laughs> it's a, uh, it's a lot. It's a lot. So I'm still going through that. We still have the, the launch date on uh, January 7th set up. I'm headed down to Lemur this week to uh, put some finishing touches on that and continue building that. Uh, the the academy is also not only specifically here in Southern California uh, through San Clemente and, and Lemur, held at San Clemente through Lemur, via Lemur, partnered with Lemur, um, but it, there's going to be some remote things happening there too, and I will talk more about that as that gets solidified. I'm still uh, in talks with different uh, instructors, you know, to kind of build the remote faculty before I really start talking about it but that's that's in the works so it's not just a you know a program that's partnered with lemur down here in southern california but there's going to be uh opportunities for those who do not live anywhere near southern california uh so pay attention to that there will be news at thebayshed.com backslash academy uh the album my album titled smile is uh, still in the works, still in the works. Um, So there's seven tunes, and I I think I've talked about that I did kind of a narrated track of the lyrics to the song, Smile. Uh, (laughs) This was a funny session. This was a funny session, because like I get in there, and then I'm going through like, you know, just, just reading through these lyrics. And then the engineer, who's a good friend of mine, and at one point was my roommate for a couple years. Like we have a tight relationship and a good working relationship. And uh, he's like, man, it feels stiff. It feels stiff. You got to loosen up. You got to loosen up, dude. You got to loosen up. Did another take. He's like, dude, it's too heavy. It's too heavy. Like loosen up. And so I'm, I'm mid, midway reading through the lyrics of Smile. And in my headphones, he just starts playing tunes. And, I, and, I, and they're funny. And then they're kind of... They're all inside jokes between us. 
But he's like, dude, you're not loosening it up. Like you're, you're reading lyrics about smile and like you sound like you're pissed off, you know? So he's, <laughs> I think the first track he played was Careless Whisper. Uh, and it just came on in my headphones while I'm reading the lyrics and I started cracking up. It was hilarious. And then he just, he went down the rabbit hole. He's, you know, like I could just hear him, you know, looking up something else and he'd send me another track <laughs> that, that made me laugh. Uh, so I did, I did quite a few takes on actually getting through those lyrics because he kept making me laugh. And then at some points I would just start singing along with the tune he was playing in the headphones. Um, what was there? There was Careless Whisper. I think there was Living on a Prayer by Bon Jovi. There was an Elvis track in there. Um, I forgot which Elvis tune. There was uh, My Milkshake Brings All the Boys to the Yard. I don't even know the name of that tune. Is the, is the title just Milkshake? Um, yeah, but he was just playing these these tunes in my headphones while I'm reading the lyrics. So it was, it was kind of, it was fun. It was, it was a fun little endeavor. Um, and a, a smart engineer move to actually get me to laugh and uh, actually smile while reading the lyrics to this. Um, so yeah, that's that's a little backstory <laughs> about what's happening with the record is I have to comp through myself uh, singing along and uh, cut out the parts where I sing along and actually just read the lyrics because it turned into just like, you know, reading through a couple stanza of lyrics turned into like 45 minutes of just this big joke uh, in the studio. That was, that was hilarious. And uh, yeah, <laughs> so that's what's happening with the record. Um, it's again, final approach, getting it all wrapped up. And I'll be talking more about when and where you guys can finally check that out. And, uh, you know, finally probably listen to me play. I know that there's not a lot out there of me playing. Uh, so yeah, that's happening. All right, so I, I think I don't talk enough about like just what I do, like some of my gigs and stuff. I don't know if I talk about that as much uh, here on the podcast or during the intro of the podcast. A couple weeks ago, maybe it's longer than that. I forgot the actual date. I feel like it was late, late October. So probably closer to a month, probably closer to a month ago. I was doing this gig in Beverly Hills. And I knew it was a big deal because the band leader hit up the band and he's like, yo, you know, here's the gig. It's kind of going to be an all day event. Heads up. I can't really talk about it because the, the artist I was working with had signed a non-disclosure agreement. So he's like, man, I can't talk about it. But, you know, here's the details on the gig. Through talking with the band leader more, I find out that we're working out like the backline situation. And he's like, man, the MD for the group after us is Ricky Minor. So like, you know, I had to sort out what I needed for backline because whatever Ricky was using for backline and that was all, I wasn't gonna play Ricky's rig. Like they had to give me my own rig for the backline. Uh, which was, I don't know what company they went for or went through for all that, but it was a great backline. Uh, I always like when Aguilar cabs are backlined. <laughs> so, like I walked in and I see the Aguilar rig and I'm like, sweet, sweet, I'm good with this. Uh, I was playing upright on that gig, but I walk in and I see I see Ricky's rig all set up, and it was kind of it was kind of a big deal for me as a bass player because I remember growing up watching uh, I don't know the name of the show it was like late night at the Apollo or something it's where they would air you know the concerts from the the Apollo Theater in New York in Harlem, and Ricky was the MD of that. Um, before he came out here and then was the, the MD for American Idol for a while. 
So I, I had grow, grown up watching Ricky on TV, and it was it was cool to like you know then I'm meeting Ricky and his rigs right there, and definitely I got to hear him uh, got to hear him play a little bit because there was a non-disclosure thing. Like right after we got done playing, <laughs> we had to take all of our stuff, head right back to the green room, and then on a shuttle back to our cars right away. Like we didn't get to hang. Uh, but it was this huge party at Beverly Hills Hotel, at the Beverly Hilton in Beverly Hills. It was supposed to be some kind of, you know, like celebrity kind of event situation. I think John Baptiste was supposed to be there, Beyonce, Jay-Z. Um, I had heard that Elton was going to be playing on the other stage for the event, Elton John. That was all fascinating, but I think the big takeaway for me was getting to meet Ricky Minor and hearing him play live, and that band was slamming. That band sounded so good, so good. I didn't, I didn't talk to Ricky. I did not talk to Ricky about joining, uh, joining me on the podcast because I didn't want that thing. You know, I didn't want to. I, I won. I didn't want the, the person I was playing with to get pissed off at me for like hitting up Ricky on the side for something else I'm doing. Um, I didn't do that. But I, I'm, I am in the works of trying to get Ricky on the podcast. I think that would be great, and that was a big deal to me. Um, that, was, that was really cool. All right, on the episode is New York electric bassist Mike Viseglia. Uh, I've known of Mike for some time and initially met him when he was out here in Los Angeles playing at a small upstairs club called Room 5. Uh, I actually don't know if Room 5 still exists. I I had played there a few times over the years. um, And then a friend of mine, a good friend of mine in New York named Steve Milhouse, uh, who's been on the podcast and will be again soon. He's got a he's got a very cool new record coming out that's getting some some nice attention. Um, Millhouse, Steve Millhouse hits me up. He's like, "Yo, man, like I'm in town. I'm stopping by Room Five tonight. Like Mike Visegli is playing." I'm like, "All right, cool." So I went out there and I checked it out, and I had not met Mike yet, and it was great. It was great hearing him play, and hearing him play left a strong impression on me. It was fantastic. It was fantastic. His playing is absolutely wonderful, and he there's, there's so much awareness and attention given to nuance and space when Mike plays. It was wonderful to hear him play and then uh, meet him later. Uh, before connecting with him, I don't even know. I don't remember how long ago that was. That was several years ago. Uh, but before connecting with him now on the podcast, Mike has worked with Suzanne Vega, Jackson Brown, Avril Lavigne, Phoebe Snow, Cindy Lauper, Bette Midler, and many others. Mike also has a couple projects in the works that he co-leads. One of those projects is titled, Then There Were Two. This is a duo project with Mike on electric bass and vocalist Fiona McBain. Uh, That's a super hit project where Mike and Fiona have, have cultivated these really great arrangements of pop tunes and jazz standards just as a duo with electric bass and voice. You can check that out on Spotify, and there's also some videos on Mike's YouTube page. Another project is a group titled Pine Cats, which is co-led by New York guitarist John Putnam. Uh, They just released a killing new album called Bedouin Breakfast. Uh, You can also check that out on Spotify. And in addition to touring, working on Broadway, these two projects, Mike has also authored a book titled A View from the Side, Stories and Perspectives on the Music Business, which are interviews with bass giants Will Lee, Marcus Miller, Leland Sklar, Tony Levin, and more. All right, all right, so a couple things about this. One, uh, Leland Sklar, right? Lee Sklar is one of my favorite bass players. 
think it was, I don't know when it was, maybe late September. I can't remember. I was coming back from a gig in Sun Valley, Idaho. <laughs> Which, by the way, Sun Valley, uh, it's a cool little town. It's a cool little ski town. Uh, yeah, this is cool. It was actually like last the last episode with Barry Green. It was funny to see that name pop up, that he was a part of the Sun Valley Symphony uh, up there. Because Sun Valley is such a small town. Anyways, I'm coming back from this gig in Sun Valley, Idaho. And I'm at the airport, whatever, waiting for our bags and stuff. And Lee Sklar walks by. And I'm just like, man, was was Lee Sklar on the flight? I don't remember him seeing... I don't remember seeing him on the plane. But... Uh, huh. But there's... That's Lee Sklar. All right. Huh. Kind of funny. Uh, Lee goes and gets his base. I get my, my luggage. Standing outside. You know, waiting, waiting on the curb there at LAX. And I'm like, I don't know, I'm like maybe six feet away from Lee Sklar. And I have met him before. I met him at the Troubadour a few years back. And, you know, it's like, okay. One, this is a very rare opportunity. Two, do I want to be that guy? Uh, do I, hey, hey, Lee Sklar, you're not going to remember me. And I'm sure you're waiting to get home from whatever gig you were just doing. But now I'm going to harass you a little bit because I also play bass, right? Or I can leave him alone. I can be the annoying guy or I can leave him alone. I chose leave him alone. But I was really tempted to go approach him about being on the podcast. I just didn't. I didn't out of respect for Lee Sklar. But yeah, definitely one of my favorite bass players. Uh, also on the topic, right? On the topic of interviews with Sidemen. Uh, you guys ever see the documentary Hired Gun? came out in uh, 2016. Uh, I think the idea was to talk about the life of a professional musician working as a sideman. Now, I didn't I didn't like the documentary uh, because I didn't think they talked to cats that were like really deep in the game as sidemen. You know, as a bass player, when I think of like high level sidemen, I think of guys like Pino, Leland Sklar, uh, Will Lee, you know, the, the people that, that are in Mike Viseglia's book. In the documentary, it was Metallica. Yeah, okay, that's a band, not a hired gun. David Foster, all right, not a hired gun. He's a producer. Alice Cooper, yeah, not a hired gun. <laughs> you know what I mean? Like, okay, all right. Like, I, I think Liberty De DeVito, the drummer for Billy Joel, put that documentary together, and it all seemed like it was aimed at talking about uh, his, his contempt for Billy Joel. I don't think they covered the topic appropriately, but, but I do think Mike, Mike's book, uh, A View From The Other Side, nails it because first and foremost, Mike is one. He's a high level sideman. Um, and so he, he gets it. Now I'm not saying Liberty DeVito is not a high level sideman. I'm not saying that, uh, working with Billy Joel for so long. Yeah, that's exactly what you are. That's a high level gig and you're a sideman, but I don't, I didn't like the documentary. That's, that's all I'm saying, is I didn't like the documentary. But Mike's book, A View From The Side, check it out. Uh, I will also have links up to that and all the other things, all the projects that I just mentioned uh, at thebayshed.com backslash podcast. Click on Mike Viseglia. It's really cool. It's really cool to connect with him. He's got, uh, there's a lot of articles out there already of him. You know, he's worked with Suzanne Vega for so long. Him and I didn't actually talk about that. Because he's done so many interviews, uh, I was hoping to get into something else interview-wise. And so we talk about, you know, more of what he's doing artistically uh, with these projects. 
We don't actually talk about the book, so I'm going to have to have Mike back on. I also know that he hosts a base brunch in New York that we did not talk about. So, um, yeah, stay stay tuned for Mike Viseglia's return. He's definitely going to be back on the podcast because there's more, more ground to cover with him for sure. Uh, one thing Mike and I spoke about after we kind of turned off the mics uh, for this interview is he was telling me about a podcast he started called The Song Whisperers, where they do these deep dives on, on songs that have been impactful uh, to him over the years. And even that, like we, he started telling me about it. He was telling me about some of the tunes that were on it. That was fascinated. And so we started talking a little bit about that. That was, uh, <laughs> that was a lot of fun. Uh, I'd, I'd love I'd love for when he comes back on to take some deep deep dives into some tunes. I'm always I'm always a big fan of that. Uh, but here it is. Here's the initial round one <laughs> episode. Round one of probably what's going to be a, a mini series of podcasts with Mike Biseglia. Here's the here's the first installment, and here's my chat with New York electric bassist Mike Biseglia. How you doing, man? No, I'm good. Huh? Nice likewise, to meet you. Likewise, likewise. Uh, how's New York? Oh, where are you again? Where are you again? I'm in Venice, uh, Venice Beach. Oh, yeah. nice. Well, you're in a good, good part of the world. Not bad. I, uh, no complaints. Have you ever spent much time out here? I yeah. have. Venice yeah. specifically? Um, I've been to Venice. No, not Venice specifically, but I've been there a few times. Okay. Sure. Yeah, it's pretty cool. It's got its... Uh, it's got its own vibe. How's uh, uh, the music scene out in Venice? Uh, specifically Venice, like the west side of LA is pretty weak. There's not a lot going on over here. The west side, uh, more closer to downtown Los Angeles, mm-hmm. centralized. There's things happening. Cool. Yeah. Not bad. Nice. Good to know. <laughs> yeah, so you know, yeah, well, next time I, you're I, out I, here, don't go looking for gigs in Venice. <laughs> no, I, I I won't. I have a I have a lot of friends out there, um, mostly in uh, the Santa Monica area. Okay, there, yeah, so. that's just right there. It's a mile north. Yeah, yeah, yeah that's nice. How uh, how long you been in New York? You a New Yorker? I'm born in the East okay, Village, so that's a yes. Yeah, <laughs> pretty. That's that's a big time, yes. Except for a little departure when I was younger to New Jersey for ten years. Okay, I've been in New York my whole. What life. What was the yeah. departure about? Well, I was young, living with my my family, and they they moved to New Jersey for okay. ten years um, when I was five years old, and then we moved back to New York City when I was fifteen. So it was actually perfect. Yeah. It was perfection. Just when the hormones were like raging. You go back to New York. I was already playing bass anyway, because okay. I started in New Jersey when I was like, uh, you know, eleven, twelve years old, somewhere in that. In that, you area. got in young, man. What? What was it? What was it that uh, at eleven, twelve years old that captivated you to want to start? Oh, there's a there's a lot of things. First of all, um, my father was a musician. He was a sax okay. player. I was like indoctrinated in a good way. From the time I could like make a sense, yeah, yeah. like listening to really cool music and and knowing you know who these mostly jazz you know because that's what he was into sure. you know so getting a pretty good you know uh, fundamental knowledge of the the great performers of the you know the fifties forties and 50s. right 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 
So I, I already developed a, a, um, a love for music. And uh, by the time I was like 10 or 11, my father was, uh, you know, wasn't like, do you want to play an instrument is what is <laughs> right, right, right. Play. You're, you're playing. Yeah. So I started out, I started out um, with guitar, okay. you know, but, but interestingly enough, I, I always being the black sheep, I started out wanting to be wanting to play nylon string guitar, like classical and flamenco, because that was the sound that was, that my ears were drawn mm. to. Um, and so we found a, a classical teacher in New Jersey and I started, you know, getting lessons. And of course that was great for my right yeah. hand. So I was, I, so that was happening. And, and um, concurrently with that, my sister, who's a, who's a year younger than me, befriended a, 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 a local band from the town that I was living in that were, they were like two and three years older than me. But my father being the cool, crazy cat that he was, allowed the, this band to start rehearsing in our double garage. There, we had no, they weren't even, no, rel, no relation. Yeah, no, no, no direct affiliation. No, just like, you guys need a place to rehearse? Sure, you know, because my, my, my father Yeah, yeah was. okay. <laughs> And uh, so they're rehearsing there and I'm upstairs like, you know, trying to learn to play classical guitar and all that. And one day they had a fight, an argument with their bass player and he walked out of rehearsal. <laughs> so the big, the big, <laughs> you can see where this yeah. is going. So the big light bulb, the big light bulb goes off in my father's head and he's like, hey, I got an idea, you guys. If you want to keep rehearsing in the garage, you got to try my son out on bass. And I never, <laughs> never. Your so dad, I was like, your you dad's talking? hooking everybody up. Your dad's hooking up them with a spot to rehearse, getting them a new bass player and setting you on this trajectory. Like your dad was making, well, you your go. dad was making some things happen. He was always making things happen to the day he died. But so, so, so I was looking up at him like, what are you talking about? I never even played a bass. And he goes, get in the car. And he, goes, <laughs> he drives me to the local music store, buys me like a $60. I remember it was a domino bass, okay. which was kind of like this hexagonal looking thing. <laughs> really crazy. And uh, because I had a I had a very good ear, I came back to the, the the house, and the band said, "Well, do you think you could play this song?" It was like some Beatles song that they were working on, and I was like, "Well, let me listen to it." And you know, I put the bass on, and I started like playing along with it a little bit. And I was it was obvious that I was getting it. I was finding the right notes yeah. to play. So, that, okay, you're in the band. <laughs> And I'm like, so I'm like 12, I'm like uh, 12, and these guys are all like 14, which is a big difference yeah, at that absolutely. age. Absolutely. Absolutely. Those are the, yeah. those are the veteran guys. That's for hanging around. And they were also the hormonal yeah, guys. Yeah. So it was all about, it's all about girls and that. But I started playing like dances and, and, you know, stuff when I was that age. On all, bass. all covers. All, yeah. No, yeah, they weren't trying covers. to put together their own little. They had one song that was an original. Okay. Yeah. A silly song that the guitar player wrote. Um, so we, we did have one song that was original, but it was fun to learn all that music. I mean, they were playing like, you know, Creedence Clearwater Revival and Beatles sure. and Jimi Hendrix 
and cream and you know it was, was this was this some of the first time you got exposed to some of that music if your dad's listening a lot to jazz like you know bebop post-bop cool jazz that stuff were you finally hearing some of this music for the first time through these guys yes except for the beatles i'd say probably you know my, i had a lot of friends that were into um all kinds of uh rock music so i might have heard a, i might have heard some of it but no for sure there was it was a first time thing for a lot yeah, of it yeah nice nice yeah what uh what were some big takeaways like the first time you heard you know whoever zeppelin or hendrix or like oh i can tell you exactly i was in um okay I was in fifth grade in, well, this must have been 68, 69. Whenever the first, when did the first Zeppelin record come out? I think it was 68 or 69, somewhere yeah. in there. Very first one. So I was in fifth grade when this kid, oh, I still remember his name because it was such a momentous day for me, brought in the first Led Zeppelin album. Okay. You put it on the little turntable there. And when Dazed and Confused came on, it was a world-changing event. Because I'd never heard music that big, that grand. Yeah, the yeah, rock, yeah. Like the rock, you know, godness yeah, baby, of it all. Baby, baby, baby. And then, oh, the, you know, those... Yeah. And the guitars in octaves, you know, baby, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> holy shit <laughs> so, so that was a world changer yeah 69 so. i just looked it up it came out in january of 1969 yeah. so 69 yeah. was when i heard that first record and and i you know i went like rock and roll crazy yeah that, that was it hooked yeah and i even like i remember sitting with my parents at the table like no, you don't understand. I really have to grow my hair really long now, <laughs> which they allowed me to do. It was just great, you know. What was uh, the name of that band with the fourteen-year-old guys? It was called the Young Loves. <laughs> <laughs> how long? How long did that last? Uh, it lasted till I. Let's see. I was in. That lasted like. I don't know, a year, okay. year and a half. Yeah. We played a lot of gigs. I remember, I vividly remember some of the gigs we yeah. played, you know, it was pretty So yeah. what was, uh, what was the first amp? You had this domino bass. What was the first amp? I can tell you it was, let me think here. The first amp. That's a good question, man. Something tells me it was a Sears. What was that brand that oh, Sears Oh, I don't even had? know. Oh, they used to make electronics. Okay, me. they had an amplifier, uh, silver. Maybe it was a silver tone or okay. something. Silver tone. Yeah, like, it was something like okay. that. Okay, just yeah. store brand from Sears. Oh yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah of yeah. course. What did yeah. I know that? I didn't know about anything at sure. this point. Nothing. Sure. I didn't know what a good. You know, the 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 other mo big momentous day for me was when I. I finally owned a 1968 Fender Jazz bass, nice. which was not long after. Okay, that. say within like a few years, I got my hands on on a 68 Fender Jazz bass, and that was like I was carrying that around in a hard case 
like it was the holy fucking grail. <laughs> I mean, yeah, of and course. I was all, and also, I was so proud of it, like showing all my friends, yeah. look what yeah. I got. Look what I got. Yeah. You know? I'm, I'm like 14 years old. <laughs> look what I got. What happened to the base? What happened to that? I have no oh, idea. Oh, man. How did you sell it? Did it get stolen? Like, how, how did it leave your possession? I might have, you know, I really don't know. I might have sold it or traded it in for something. I don't remember whatever okay. happened to that base. Yeah, I really, I'm trying to, I, I thought about it, like, recently. Whatever happened to that yeah. base? It's, it's, like, lost in the uh, the fog. Of <laughs> so, at, at what point did you get into some formal education? Like, did you start taking some lessons, or were you just shedding with records? Oh, yeah. Yeah. Pretty much a meet. Uh, actually, the I started taking lessons when I moved back to New York City when I was 15 years okay. old. I started really serious about studying bass, bass, uh, bass guitar, and I started taking. So what are we at? Like 1970, 70? No, would it be 72, 73? No, 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 earlier than that. Uh, 69. Oh, 69 is you when you're 15 and go back to New York. Okay, that's right. Okay. Right at the end of '69, like it was that transitional year. So, um, man, that was a yeah. that was a. I mean, Woodstock happened that year. That yeah, Everything going happened. to the moon happened that year. Like that was a huge year, including including what I didn't know was the um, you know, the Black Music Festival up in Harlem that we just saw the documentary mm-hmm. on. You know, um, that um, uh, what's the the drummer the drummer from the Roots? Questlove. Um, I can't. Yeah. yeah, when Questlove did that documentary, I didn't know that was happening at all. And I was living in New okay. York. And, you know, if I knew that, it would have been, you know, I would have been. Up right, there. right. I didn't I didn't know about that either, actually. I haven't seen the documentary yet. I was just tracking oh, down the one on Ron pretty... Carter the other day. Oh, I haven't seen yeah, that one yet. They're, they're I, coming out too I, fast. I can't stay up anymore. Yeah. No, I know. It's too much. Yeah. Um, so, actually, I'm curious about this. Your dad being a jazz player, was there ever an ever an attraction to playing upright? Completely, and I'll tell you, I'll tell you where that came in. I, um, my father started working for a company called Radio Free Europe, okay. which I believe is still in existence today. And basically, it was kind of a uh, you know under under the guise of of sending. Um, Western music into communist Eastern Bloc commie, communist countries, you know, it was sort of a propaganda thing, but it was mostly with music and arts, okay. you know. So they would, um, while he was working there, he met a guy who was working there as well, who happened to be a Czech bass player, upright bass player. And it turns out that this Czech bass player, his name was Jan Arnett, was the very first Czech bass player to emigrate, actually escape. Yeah, it's an escape mm. um, out of communist, uh, what was Czechoslovakia at the wow. time. This is before George Mraz and before Miroslav Vítas. Right. He was the first one. He came over here and immediately started playing with jazz giants yeah. like Herbie Mann and Sarah Vaughn. And, and uh, he actually wound up in, in um, Art Blakey and the Jazz Messengers okay. for a while. But my father only found this out upon meeting this guy. So I was like, uh, what was I? Uh, let me see. When did I? 
This is actually before I came to New York because we're still in New Jersey. I must have been about 12 years old. Jan Arnett, this bass player, was doing a recording session in Manhattan with Chico Hamilton, okay. the drummer. And he invited me and my father to the session. So I was like 12, yeah, going to New York City, going to this recording session with Chico Hamilton and Jan playing uh, upright bass, and a young Eric Gale on guitar playing insane bebop guitar before stuff before all that stuff and i was of course blown away so that ignited my interest in upright bass but um and 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 i i did i did do some forays into playing upright um but i had i never really found my voice on the instrument Mm -hmm. and at that you know and i was swept away you know by you know, 60s and 70s rock and roll at this time. Sure. And uh, so uh, Upright really wasn't uh, a, a thing for young bass players and rock and roll bass players in the in the 70s. Sure. It, became, it became more of a thing later on, but in, during that time, it wasn't much of a thing. So I went full steam into studying uh, electric bass guitar. Yeah, I mean, at that point, the electric bass is still a, you know, pretty young instrument, you know, and all this music that's coming yeah. out of Detroit and stacks and what the Beatles are doing. That's a, that's a mm-hmm. really fascinating time to have been a part of. And the British yeah. invasion, you know, that, yeah, that's, that's the stuff I was actually more into at that point in my life, where I was more into the British invasion stuff than I was into the American stuff. Hmm. I, I was like really crazy about, British bands at that point in my life. So um, I was like, well, you know, the upright bass isn't figuring too. Yeah, it doesn't really fit that. <laughs> it doesn't fit it that was, mold. You no, know, except for a couple of bands, yeah. a, couple, a couple of bands that I dug. You know, there was there was Pentangle, which was like. I've never even like, heard of them. Yeah, progressive folk rock band that had an upright bass. And, uh, you know, of course, Jack Bruce played upright on, on, on a bunch of his solo albums mm-hmm. as well. I mean, I so I was I was digging it, but I I was certainly listening to a lot of jazz. But I was kind of swept away into the, uh, the you know the the aesthetic of the the rock guy. Yeah, yeah. So then, um, let, let's fast forward. So you get into some private lessons. You start studying formally. When did you start yeah. really getting into the working scene? Um, in high school, well, I was working. I started playing almost. Let me see. I must have been about almost immediately when I was like 15, 16, I'd say I started playing some clubs in New York okay. with some singer songwriters, 16, 17. And, and then I was in high school in New York. And I started, I didn't start, I joined a, a really cool eight piece band that had horns in it. And we started playing all of the uh, the nightclubs in the tri-state area. Okay. So I, while I was in high school, okay. And a guitar player in that band came from the same neighborhood. I was living in Queens at the time. Came from the same neighborhood uh, that I was living in, and we became very good friends. And he was a guitar player in that band, and his name is Bruce Kulick. who became the guitar player in Kiss. <laughs> 
who I still have, who lives in LA, and I still have, I uh, still ma- maintain some contact. Okay. With him after all these. So, but interestingly enough, that that's the, that's who was in that band, that first band, like the first kind of pro band that started playing all these clubs and all these nightclubs in the tri-state area. Yeah, yeah, and he was the guitar player. So um, there you Did go. Did that uh, then that exposed you to even some some different music? Like you had to learn this oh, repertoire and yeah, all that absolutely. Stuff. Yeah, we were. Um, that got me into some of the soul music that I was missing because that band having horns and the trumpet player in that band was a huge soul music fan. So we started playing like songs by the Temptations and the Four Tops sure. and War, you know, all those cool bands. And that that opened up that door for me at that age. Yeah. So then were you still when 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 that door gets opened up? Are you you more interested in going through that door? Are you still into the British invasion? Are you living in both worlds? I'm still into Brit- the British stuff, and I probably should have put more focus into that world at that time. It would have uh, probably rounded out my bass playing uh, earlier. <laughs> but, um, I was still into the British thing, and I kept kind of, I kept you know, kept on that horse for a yeah. while. That seems like an interesting yeah. time. To have been in America when the British music thing comes over to the States mm. and it's uh, so such a literal invasion kind of thing. And to check mm. that out versus what's happening in the States and like view how everybody's jumping on to the British sound so much. And I wonder, I'm, I'm fascinated in like kind of the psychology of that. If Americans at that time needed an escape from all the stuff that was happening in America, you know, because you had Vietnam uh, happening. There's a lot of, lot of yeah. racial tension. And I wonder how much of it was just an escape from this, uh, you know, incubator of the States at the time. Uh, I'm not, I don't know. I mean, it's a good question and I'm not, I'm not hundred percent sure. I, I did have a draft card for Vietnam. Oof. Yeah. I almost, uh, almost got caught up in that. And thankfully, I didn't. Yeah. But um, I think it has a lot to do with just the the exoticism of another country, because you know the British were doing the same thing. They were like all about American right. music. And I mean, those how, early Beatles records are just basically like Little Richie, you know, <laughs> like that's they're just duplicating yeah. Americans, but then Americans go to their version of the same sound. Little Richard, Chuck yeah. Berry, you know, into all you know, Bill Haley, all you know, all that stuff, Fats Domino. And, uh, you know, and subsequently when they started making it their own, like, you know, that's when I was sentient enough to be turned on to it. And, you know, I, I just loved that, mm-hmm. that thing. It was like, you know, it was, it was, it was sexier. It was like, you know, bigger, it was more ma- macho and virile, you know, playing through Marshall. And yeah. 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 Like yeah. <laughs> was so, that uh, was that kind of your hair more off. around? Was that on the radio more than American music? Was it on television more than American music? Was it popularized at that time in the states more than American? I don't music know about was? more. No, I'm not sure about more because you know we had shows. You know we had shows in the '60s and '70s, um, like Don Kirshner's rock concert and. And um, in in the sixties, there there were a bunch more, like uh, where the action is and Hullabaloo and Shindig and all these shows that had 
all kinds of music okay. on it. But I think uh I don't know, for some reason it uh you know, being being a, a teenager, that music, you know, resonated with me and it was a it was a sexier music. And when I would go see and they were also they were playing bigger concerts. Right. When those bands came over here, whether it was like the Who, Jethro Tull, you know, Led Zeppelin, um, Emerson Lake and Palmer, yes, all those bands, they were playing these huge concerts. So just the effect of going, I, and I went to all yeah, of yeah. them, you know, the effect of going to, into this giant cathedral of rock, you know, had a much, much bigger, you know, impact on yeah. me. Soul, soul music at that time wasn't playing, you know, to, you know, 30,000 people a night, 20,000 right. people a night. So it was just the, the whole like grandiosity of it that I was, I was attracted to. As yeah. Well. How, how did your, how did your father take to the British invasion? He's in, yeah. He wasn't yeah. standoffish. Well, like, I mean, the jazz musicians can very easily be standoffish to something that's not this total purist thing. You know, you know what it was with him? He wanted, I mean, I became the music, the, uh, I was living the vicari- uh, vicariously, uh, living vicariously through what I was pursuing. And eventually, you know, me becoming a professional musician was the, you know, the biggest accomplishment in, in his life yeah, as yeah. well. <laughs> That's cool. So, so him taking him taking all of these, uh, taking to heart all of these bands that I was digging at the time was just, was had more to do with him bonding with me than him actually loving sure. the music. You know, he wanted to bond with me. So if I if I picked up on a new record, you know, and and uh, you know, and played it for him, he would he would be enthusiastic about it because I was enthusiastic that's cool. about it. Yeah, that that's kind of cool. Thing. Yeah, that's very cool. Um, do you have children? No, no, I don't. It's a. Uh, I think for me, I don't have children either. I I think I gravitated to so much of the music my father listened to for the same reason. It's like I was trying to... Yeah, mm. and me and my father do not have any kind of weird, estranged relationship. Like, my mom and my dad are still together, grew up, and I was great. Um, but, you know, as a young kid, like, I wanted to be like my dad. So, like, I want to listen to the music he listens to. And um, music mm. has a lot of power that way. And it's it was a cool thing to have experienced. And I think, for me, it still shaped a lot of my my whole thing my whole musical journey you know and um it sounds like that was kind of also active in your life like your relationship with your father and your father being a musician and how that shaped shaped all of it yeah well i the the one of the great aside from the fact that he exposed me to like fantastic music from the time i was able to make a sentence um he was also um, never. He was. He, he was also incredibly encouraging about me pursuing music. That's awesome. Uh, there was never like a, you know, a, a hassle like other young children may have, or kids may have, or teenagers may have when they think they're going into. They're going to go and be a musician or a dancer or a, a, a poet or go into the arts. Uh, it was always like, yeah, go, yeah. go, yeah, go, do it. Yeah. <laughs> Which was fantastic to have that kind of support. Yeah, yeah that's huge. Um, you have yeah. a couple projects happening, and I, I checked them both out. Uh, let's start with the Pine Cats, because this is a relatively oh. newer project, right? 
This is the yeah. newest. I mean, we only, we only just released this record like a week ago. Oh, that, or that, week and a half. that's uh, that recent, huh? Okay. Yeah, within the last two weeks. Okay. Yeah. Great um, record. This Great was, record. Uh, oh, yeah. thank you very much. Um, I'm very happy and, and proud of it. Um, this was a, I, I have a friend um, who is a veteran, a very established veteran and excellent guitar player in New York named John Putnam. And we've known each other since literally like 1980. We've been like traveling around the same circles, like as a freelance musician. And, you know, eventually he got into Broadway stuff. And then I got into Broadway stuff. We wound up playing on two Broadway shows together. So we were, we, we've been like, you know, friends for decades and coincidentally um, own houses in the Catskill Mountains on the same road. <laughs> and that was a complete coincidence. And, and you, you were unaware of this at the time that you moved into that house, when bought I bought that house? When I bought that house, I was unaware that he had a house three miles down <laughs> on the same road. <laughs> now, how, long, how long were you living on the so, same road until this happened? And then what was, oh, no, what no, was no, that no. like I, when you're like, what? What? You live on? I live on that road. How long have you been no, there? Yeah, no, no, no. I I found out before I actually moved in because when we bought the house, my wife and I, he was the only person that I knew that had that lived in Manhattan, lived in the city, and had a house in the country. Mm -hmm. And I had no idea where his house okay. was. So I called him up and I said, "John, you're the only guy I know that you know how. Maybe you can help me out and give me." some tips about how to like, you know, navigate all of this, having a, a, an apartment in the city and a house in the country. And I said, yeah, I was, I'm, I, you know, I'm, I'm going to be closing on this house that I bought. And he said, where is it? I said, it's in the Catskills. He goes, well, my house is in the Catskills. <laughs> then I, he said, where? I said, it's in this little area between, Phoenicia and Margaretville and 30 miles west of, of Woodstock called Big Indian. And he goes, well, my house is in Big Indian. <laughs> and then he said, what, what road are you on? I'm like, I said, well, it's on the, it's on Olive Rear Road. He goes, well, my house is on Olive Rear Road. <laughs> it just get, I said, did we buy the same yeah, house? Yeah. <laughs> Then, then we found out that you know his house is three miles away, and that was a complete coincidence. But anyway, during the uh, during the extended COVID lockdown, he called me because we were both spending a lot of time up there. Mm -hmm. I, 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 you know, there was no reason to be in Manhattan. Sure. Manhattan was like was like zombie. Yeah, I mean, I'm, same same with Los Angeles. All the all the road guys who were here for work just split. Like, if the work's not in LA, I, I don't need to be in LA. I'll come back exactly. to it if and when it opens. Yeah. Exactly. So we were up there and he calls me up one day and he's like, um, you want to, um, you want to get together and, and, you know, do some music. I have these ideas for tunes and, you know, we have nothing else to do. So let's, let's hang. And, and so I, we started hanging out. We started working on, on songs. And then eventually we had enough songs that we were like, let's go, you know, let's go play a gig. Yeah. You know, the two of us, you know, sort of like hot tuna or something, you know, like Jack Cassidy and Yorma County. <laughs> and, and I was like, sure, let's go play a gig. So we 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 played a couple of gigs up up there in like in Woodstock, actually. Okay. Woodstock, New York. And um then um 
um, then after after the uh, the lockdown started easing, we started spending some more time back in New York, and and uh, we're continuing with you know making music, and we started doing a couple of gigs in New York, and we were building up this body material, and and then it was like, okay, well, what are we going to do now? And he says, well, what you want to make a record? Yeah, let's make a record of this. <laughs> So we started planning making making a record of the material that we had been um, accumulating, and and we invited some very special guests to work with us on the record. So it wasn't just the two of sure. us. Um, so we invited like drummers, like fan, great drummers, like Jerry Murata and Josh Dion and Danny McDermott, and then we had uh, the great multi instrumentalist Larry Campbell play on a tune, and we had. Um, Brian Mitchell, who's uh, kind of like the the um, like the Doctor John of the Northeast. Okay, <laughs> uh, that's his that's his vibe, yeah. and you know, and he's cut quite a quite a swath uh, of a career doing doing that kind of music. And he's a great organist and pianist. And we had him come in and play on a couple tunes. So so uh, you know, we we worked really hard on this record and and uh, just really finished it about a month ago and and then did some mastering and and you know set up you know all the streaming platforms to release it and that's my latest yeah. project. It's called the Pinecast. Yeah, yeah. So uh, the the Pinecast and the title of the record is pronounce this word because I don't want to mess it up. It's Bedouin, Bedouin breakfast. Bedouin breakfast. Now I looked up what yeah. Bedouin means. Yeah. What's the yeah. what's the relevance of this? Well, first of all, it's it's a it's a you know first it's a it's a fun if you know what a Bedouin is and bed and Bedouin breakfast and bed and breakfast. Okay. So it's a little it's a little play on words okay. that's kind of funny. And a Bedouin is a uh, you know is a they're 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 desert wanderers. Yeah. They live in the deserts of the Mid East. Um, and there is a tune, uh, the title track actually called Bedouin Breakfast. There's a part that goes into this sort of like Mid-Eastern kind of jam thing. Mm-hmm. That's why that tune was named that. Then we thought that the, you know, the play on words was enough to catch someone's ear. So we might, we might as well title the record. Okay. I thought so, there was a relationship to the pandemic somehow with this wandering and the openness no. and all that stuff. All right. No, no, it came about by that that okay. that really very very cool record. <laughs> Thank you. Yeah, yeah, I was into it. What uh, when you guys were doing gigs and the record is nine tunes, and you hadn't maybe yeah. even had all nine done, or you had had these nine done, how else would you fill out the set list? What other things were you playing to fill out the gig? We played um, we played some covers okay. uh, that we arranged for the, as a duo, mm-hmm. which we still have in our in our repertoire. And um, and then we played a couple of tunes from John had did a uh, had done a a record a previous record that I wasn't involved in uh, so we played a couple of his other tunes and uh, you know but um, we we did we I think we threw in about three you know, a few covers that we arranged okay and maybe three or four covers so we have a, we can actually play two you know two sets two full sets of music oh, right wow. now. Even as That's a duo, great. we can do it. Yeah. So speaking of duo, that leads me to your other project, uh, which is Then There Were Two. And now I heard a rendition of this years ago. And I, I, I think I met you when you were out here doing a rendition of this, when you were playing with just a vocalist. 
oh, and a yeah. small venue that I don't think exists anymore called Room 5. Yes. Yeah. Oh, I didn't know you yeah, were there. Yeah, my friend Steve Milhouse was in town and uh, told me that you were playing there. Oh, He's like, yeah. dude, you want to go? I'm like, yeah, let's go. Uh, oh, and that cool. was with, I believe, an L.A. vocalist. I oh, forgot right. her name, that was... but uh, Cecilia? Was Sorry, it Cecilia? What? Yeah, it was Celia. Celia, yes. Yeah, she was uh, touring with Alanis Morissette around that time. Yeah, With my friend Julian and uh, Mike Farrell on keys. Like, I knew a couple guys on that tour, and I met met her after the fact. Yeah, my my uh, my, um, the singer that I made the record with is this fantastic Australian singer who now who's been living in New York for a long time. Um, Fiona McBain, mm-hmm. and uh, we we did lots and lots of gigs playing that music, and as the two of us, and then um, the more recent iteration of that was with a third person who played. Uh, piano and chromatic harmonica. It was a beautiful sound. Yeah. We never record, we never really recorded it, but we played a bunch of gigs as a trio. Mm-hmm. Still calling it. Then, then there were yeah. two. Uh, but that that the, that show you're talking about. Yeah, I came out to L.A. and Celia Chavez is a friend of mine and a very very good singer. Um, she was she really liked the record, and I said, "Well, you want to sing it?" Let's, let's go <laughs> Great. So she learned the tunes, and we actually, yeah, I remember that show. That was nice. That was fun. Yeah, that was. Um, what was the, how did you and Fiona meet to start putting this project together? Oh, I met her. She was, uh, she was playing um, in a in a, a band uh, back in, you know, back when I was um, just thinking about this kind of uh, record. Um, she was pe- playing in a band called Olabel, okay. which had, which had uh, Amy Helm, Levon Helm's daughter, Amy Helm, who's now an artist in her own right. That's you know traveling the world with her own band um, as another singer, and had her husband, whose name is Tony Leone, on drums. And Tony is now playing in Little mm-hmm. Feet as a drummer, as the drummer. Okay. So. Um, yeah, Fiona's voice is so haunting and original that it, um, you know, I I, I I play with Suzanne Vega, yeah. the singer, and I've been playing with her since 1985, and, and I'm still intermittently playing with her. In fact, we're playing um, the Four Nights at the City Winery in New York next okay. month. Um, there was a time um, during, uh, there's been many, many iterations of, of bands with her and there was a time where um she was kind of between drummers and guitar players and i was around and she had some gigs to do and we said why don't we try these do these gigs as a duo which we you know we we, we hadn't done before this was you and suzanne okay yeah and so um i when i started playing gigs as a duo with suzanne and 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 then taking some of her songs and rearranging it to be very bass centric to fill out some of the you know fill out some of the sound and make more music out of two people um it gave me the idea that hey you know i'm not victor wooten i'm not <laughs> yeah. uh, i'm not marcus miller but you know i have this um i have this skill that i can do mm-hmm. this and maybe i'll this is what my where my my um 
prowess, you know, can be, can be um, performed and shown. Yeah. Um, so I got together with Fiona and it was very, very difficult process to find songs that both of us really like that were not cliched songs right. that, that I can find my way into making a bass centric arrangement mm-hmm. out of. So that took a, that took a long time, but um, yeah, so that's how that all, that's how that all came about. And eventually we made a record. Yeah. Uh, the two of us doing that record. That's yeah. cool. And then, so what is what is the process you go through when selecting material? You don't want it to be cliche. You want it to have something that inspires you to do uh, a chordal thing on the bass. Right. And the right. chordal thing, the the stuff I watched on YouTube was not a six string. You're playing this on a four string bass, which is very string. actually poignant because you didn't do the upper register chordal thing you know, to get a guitar-like sound, you, you're playing the bass. You're playing a four-string bass. Yeah. Yeah. Um, well, first of all, he, he, I, I made a real, it was a very conscious decision to play it on four-string bass and, and, um, and play with no um, effects mm-hmm. and no overdubs. Yeah. That, was the, uh, that was the idea. I was going to make these sparse bass centric arrangements that you could hear that I'm playing the bass like a real person playing the bass no no overdubs to make it sound bigger than it is no effects to make it sound different than a yeah. bass it's a bass bass guitar and a mm-hmm. voice and that was it now the the really cool thing about doing it out on a four string obviously I'm limited in the amount of notes I can play to four mm-hmm. yeah <laughs> <laughs> and uh <laughs> And some of the, you know, the jazz tunes or the, 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 the tunes that I wanted to have, um, I wanted to have, um, higher structures in the chords. Um, I had to, you have to pick the notes that are the sweet notes. And interestingly enough, when you pick the sweet notes, say you're playing like a, uh, you know, major seventh sharp 11th or something. You can't play all those notes on a bass, right. but if you pick the intervals, the right intervals, and you have the singer singing the melody against the intervals that you're playing, whether they're um, whether they're two notes or three notes or or in some cases four notes, um, your ear actually fills in yeah, some yeah. of the notes that are. So you can actually hear the, the 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 structure of the chord by picking the ju- what I call the juicy notes out of the chord and trying to make that be what the you know the bass is, is playing. How aware of you are purposely playing the melody note in the chord or leaving out the melody note in your chord voicing? Which one do you prefer to do, or how do you approach that? So you're not doubling the melody, but you're also supporting the melody. There were some cases, uh, some cases where I was uh, playing, uh, supporting the melody, like in uh, "Mother Nature's Son" by the mm-hmm. Beatles. So I'm playing, like uh, you know, I'm playing the the melody starts on the the third, or in which third? In, in the case of the bass, I was playing it on the on the yeah. tenth. It's like da 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 da. So I was doubling that with the mm-hmm. vocal. Um. But in most cases, I want to stay away from that because the the melody note also 
not, not only supplies what obviously the melody, but it's also filling in some of the harmony um, on the missing notes that I can. Yeah, play. exactly. Right. So that's uh, that was a conscious choice as mm-hmm. well. To, so when you you can, you can easily make a two note a, a two note chord sound like a three note chord right. uh, by having the the right notes being played right. and have melody fill in some of the the harmony and then the ear complementing that and hearing it hearing notes that might not e- might not even sure. be there but filling in you know if you have a learned ear and you and you're used to hearing especially if you're listening to jazz uh, if you've listened to jazz you 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 you've heard these chords many 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 times so your ear can fill in the missing right. note right <laughs> right what uh like i remember when i heard you do play in this uh cuz it wasn't this project but it was the instrumentation of this project with you and a vocalist, I remember being pretty captivated about your attention to nuance while you were playing this. I I, I still really remember that. Um, what are some challenges that being so exposed in this duo setting have have grown you as a bass player or a musician or an arranger? What are some mm. things that uh, you've had to dig a little bit deeper into? I feel like the attention to nuance was always a part of your playing. Um, by how it was executed. That wasn't something that was <laughs> learned for that project. Uh, that's that's a thing already. But what what is what is doing this type of duo project helped you hone? Well, you know, when you're that exposed, you know, any any anything that you do that that uh, that you may be able to cover in a band, any any slight um articulation mistake or or note length mistake or um you know just um uh you know the technique mistake is amplified mm-hmm. when you're exposed so i tried to look at it i tried to look at it like a classical musician may look at it like a classical guitarist or a pianist may look at it where every note every note has to have equal importance to all the other mm-hmm. notes. So, um, you know, I try to really like pay attention to note lengths and dynamics and art in articulation, um, different um, registers, the sound of the instrument, you know, whether I'm playing closer to the bridge or closer to the neck, you get a different sound, obviously. And, you know, all those things, I tried to incorporate into that particular project because it was so exposed, and I, you know, I wanted to, I wanted to honor the music. All those things that I love about great players are, and what separates the the high, high, highly skilled professional from, you know, the the dilettante or or a, a mediocre bass player. Or all those, like all those things, all the nuances. Yeah you can hear so it's an aspirational thing to me you know of course i'm not i'm not um i'm not perfect with it but it's an aspirational yeah. thing yeah what um when you teach or have taught over the years how do you uh encourage the student to focus on the nuance of bass playing because i think those things are very regularly overlooked by yeah. younger cats that might want to be flashy or dazzle or do some really fancy new techniques 
uh, with the right hand or mm-hmm. left hand. And it's still like, yeah. you know, the amount of time you just spent talking about note length. I think that's so important and so regularly overlooked. Oh, yeah. How do you how do you oh, put yeah. this priority in your teaching? Well, I mean, one of the things that you can try to impart is that when you're playing music, you want to you want to be able to re- relay emotions to your your audience. So if you're only playing, you know, dazzling tapping technique or or slapping technique, and that's what you think is like. Um, is is going to captivate an audience for a long period of time um i would say that you're mistaken and you're also selling yourself short as um and selling the selling music in general short by only playing a certain way and a certain dynamic if you look at if you look at the the greatest bass players in the world, part of why they're so great is that they can they can imbue the audience and 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 imbue the music with so much emotion, and that's what's ultimately getting mm-hmm. to you. And this emotion is made up of a bunch of things. Okay. It's not just one thing. And part of what gives you um, the 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 fullest chance of bringing out emotion and also giving you the fullest chance of becoming more a complete musician if that's what your goal is is by paying attention to these details these little details are really important Mm -hmm. where you can if you can play beautifully soft i mean if you can play beautifully loudly you should tr- also try to play beautifully softly. Sure. Now, if your your instrument responds differently. The you know the the whole thing is a different experience. But there's a place for loud music. There's a place for soft music. There's a place for for rapid fire eighth notes or sixteenth notes. And there's a uh, there's a place for what you know groupings and articulations made up of all different note lengths. And they all they all they all have to be given a proper amount of attention to be able to honor the music that you're playing and give the best emotional experience to the audience, whether it's, it's super excitement, people screaming on their feet or people like drawn in and listening to the subtleties of, of um, a beautiful soft piece that you might be playing. Mm-hmm. I remember, uh, I agree. A hundred percent agree. I remember when I took some, when I first got to Los Angeles, I took some lessons with the great Alfonso Johnson and we, we, him and I spoke a lot about that. Actually. I think we, we spent more time talking about that topic than we did anything specifically related to the instrument. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Um, When playing in, in this group and then there were two and everything is not as high energetic because it's just a duo and there's only so much energy, you know, that can be produced with two or even with the with the harmonica where do you go internally and emotionally to prepare yourself to kind of get into a space to play this music i listen to i can tell you exactly where i go i'll go to bill evans trio oh, yeah. i'll go to um 
John Coltrane ballads, mm-hmm. you know, um, we, you know, the album with Duke Ellington or Johnny oh, Hartman. Love the Hartman record. Yeah. Love the Hartman yeah. record. I'll, I'll go, I'll go to those places where, where it takes me to the emotional place where I want to be when I, when I play this kind of music. Of course, I'm not ever, never, never going to compare myself with those masters, but that's the aspiration, the aspirational, emotional place I'd like to get to. What would you, what would be the characteristic that you qualify those sounds in? Like, you know, I've listened to a lot of Bill Evans trio. I know those records, those Coltrane records you referenced. Mm what would be the characteristic that pops into mind if you had to write down one or two phrases that linked those two? Cause there's some that come to mind for me initially more so about Bill Evans than Coltrane, but I'd say, well, yeah, I, I'd say like, um, you know, beautiful, beautifully fleshed out harmony mm-hmm. in, in, in Bill Evans case that some sometimes borders on, classical i mean i hear like when he plays i can hear debussy in his play that's, i could hear yeah i was gonna like the word and characteristic that comes to mind is impressionistic and romantic and absolutely that, that's the kind of classical and debussy influence on how he approached jazz well that's how i that's how i those two words are very very appropriate in describing at least my mindset when i when i put that record together mm-hmm. Are you guys working on arranging some new tunes? Where's the project at at the moment? It's on the back burner. I mean, like the the COVID thing kind of derailed yeah. that um, for a while. And uh, and Fiona, she um, she moved back to Australia for a little while, but she's back in New York okay. now, and she's raising a daughter, and so she's got a bunch of things on her plate. And her husband's you know playing in Little Feet, so he's away sure. a lot of. That adds a complication, I can imagine. So yeah, there's such a complicated thing there, but you know, we all love it, and then the New York audiences love it. The musician community loves it, and they always ask me, like, when are you going to bring that back? We want to see yeah. that again. So, so it's it's on it's on my mind. At some point, we're going to do that. You know, there are other other pieces of music that. Are yeah, I was going to ask you about head. that. What's uh, what are some that are in the in the think tank? I'd like to. I'd like to maybe I, I I don't have any specific song maybe maybe I have some specific song you know I I'd like to do the theme from Baghdad Cafe I don't even is, know which it. is a, oh you should okay I don't know where that's from Baghdad Cafe it's one of the most it's called Calling You okay. it's one of the one of the most beautiful songs written in the last fifty years and uh, I'd also like to explore some of the moody um, songs by guys like Nick Drake mm-hmm. you know. Um, who was another genius had died way before his time, British singer songwriter. Um, so there are some areas that I haven't gone into yet that I'd like to do that. I could almost um, see like some like Ricky Lee Jones happening, you know, something like that. Things that were like a little, they're popular, but they also have this kind of artistic alt quality to them also, because that's very much to me, the nature of this project. Well, we there's a song on that record called Ballad of the Sad Young Men that I got a lot of the arrangement ideas from Ricky Lee Jones' okay, version of okay. that. So she's definitely on my okay. mind. That's cool. That's cool. What else yeah. uh, What else are you working on? You got the new project out, The Pine Cats. Are you on the road with Suzanne currently? No, no, no. I'm not on the road with Suzanne. I was on the road um, 
a month ago, I did a, a short little run with David Bromberg, who I thought was, I loved, I loved it. It was great. I had never played with him before or nor have I met him. And it was a, it was great learning the music and, uh, and playing with him. I, I've been subbing on some Broadway shows in New York, um, Kinky Boots and Little Shop of Horrors, which are fun to play. I have, um, I have a great nine-piece Southern funk band that I play around New York okay. with that plays, that plays all uh, like Dr. John, uh, Neville Brothers, uh, The Meters, you know, all this Leon Russell, yeah. all these cool Southern funk tunes. Okay. Um, so um, that's the kind of stuff that that's you know keeps me keeps me going. But like this, the the Pine Cats thing, since it's the mo- most recent. And and an original project um, is on the for for uh, the forefront of my mind right now to try to play more gigs with that and try to get maybe get some radio play and you know I I put out some feelers in different parts of the country with people that I know to see if they can uh, get it on some indie radio or college radio and you know maybe get some gigs through that so I'm working on that aspect yeah kind of kinda on that topic how is it um, this post pandemic time we're in how has it been releasing a diy project have you run into some complications or people i don't know like what's that been like well we've had we've had some we've had some um stalled moments mm-hmm. where we had sessions booked and had to cancel them because people people got sure, COVID. Sure. <laughs> yeah. so that's one of the reasons this project has taken a little longer than we wanted it to but um that's just the reality that we're living yeah. in now. You know, anything can happen. You know, gigs get canceled because, you know, people get COVID and shows get canceled because the cast has COVID or people in the cast have COVID. You know, it's uh, you know, it's it's hard to navigate have navigate like doing doing you know, live music uh right now and 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 getting um getting having access to people sure. because there's been so much trouble um, in in that part of their uh, that part of the world that part of the, you know musical life yeah. with, pe- with people. How's New York? How is New York right now with all that? Full yeah. on, full on. Everything is open. All the clubs. Is there are still? Open. I know in Los Angeles, everybody's just kind of over it. You know, there's there's some things that you know maybe I still have to get tested for if I want to be involved. I uh, started working at this music college and then like I got to test regularly for that and liability things. Yeah. But other than that, you right. don't ever really hear of it. Uh, I don't have to no. do it before gigs anymore. I used to have to do it before all these gigs. Uh, yeah, me as well. I think there's one there's one place. There's a place called Joe's sure. Pub. New York, I know of it. Uh, which yeah. is yeah, great venue. And I played there recently and um, and they are still I, I I, uh, as far as I know, they're still requiring you to test before you okay. play. Uh, but uh, uh, outside of the Broadway theaters, uh, they're not requiring people to test anymore. Okay. Um, and or 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 wear masks unless uh, it, the the formal theaters. Like I went to a gig Carnegie Hall recently where I had to yeah, wear a yeah. mask. That kind of stuff. Theaters, like orchestra halls, probably. You have to wear a mask. Man, how does it, uh, if a member of the orchestra tested positive, 
do they call in a ringer right away? Like someone on the sub list, like, yo, can you be here, you know, in two hours and come up with a negative test? Yep. Yeah. That's exactly what happens with, with that. And they'll probably have the, the entire orchestra retest to make sure, sure that it didn't spread. Yeah. Caught it in the interim. Yeah. But they'll call in a ringer. I mean, and on Broadway, you're, you're supposed to have five subs for every musician. Okay. Um, there's always, at least theoretically, always going to be someone available. Right, right. And that's um, part of just the initial contract with how that works. Yeah. yeah. So it's, oh, well, you not, don't have to it's, call, it's, right? The contractor calls whoever. Oh, you have oh, to call. Oh, you line up you your own sub? To, you have to line up your own oh, subs. Oh, wow. Okay. Yeah. After they play the show, they have to be approved. Um, you know, if, if the, or if the, uh, um, if the uh, orchestra leader, or the conductor, or somebody in the creative team doesn't like uh, one of your subs, doesn't think they're doing the right job, yeah. they they will tell you that that sub, you know, we don't approve of this sub, so maybe you should look for another mm. one. But initially, it's up to you to get um, qualified people that can play okay. the shows. Huh. Yeah kind of a drag it seems like the contractor's job i mean i get it you that, that's a normal gig protocol is you send your own sub but you know right i, I get <laughs> I, I get weird about it like man why am i working for a gig i'm not even on but i know with broadway that under contract yeah. you there's a there is a stability there more so than uh a lot of other places man it's been great talking to you you actually played on my friend steve haas's album oh my yeah. god the first, I, yeah, I know yeah. Steve. I mean, Steve played a lot together. He's he's one of my favorites. Oh, great. And he's, he's awesome, man. Steve I don't know if awesome. it gets better. It just gets different. Like, he's so ridiculous. Yeah, he's, he is so yeah. good. So good. Yeah, I mean, I remember um, when he was putting that record. That was 100 years ago. I forgot man. when. It, I, list, I remember listening to it when I first started playing with him a lot. Uh, 98? Was that around the time it came out? I was about to say that's that's I was going to say more than 20 years, 20 to 25 years. Yeah. Yeah. That's uh, I think that was one of that's the first funny. places I remember coming across your name. Um, uh, and there's some other places, too. But, man, it's been great. It's been great to connect with you. Me yeah. too, man. I, this has been a pleasure. I mean, I didn't expect to it to go into these all these interesting places. <laughs> that, but I think I think it's cool to to uh be able to talk about all this stuff cool man we'll be in touch for sure thanks a lot mike thanks man uh, all right thank you so uh, we'll much. be in touch good Peace. luck see ya all right all right all right that was my talk with new york electric bassist mike viseglia uh, there's definitely Mike's Mike's gonna come back on. Mike, I had a wonderful time talking to him. He's a fantastic, fantastic bass player. Um, and such a joy to connect with. Um, so look out for the next episode with Mike. Um, we'll schedule that. We'll, we'll schedule that pretty soon. That's gonna be fun. I, there's a lot going on. I wanna wanna talk to him about the book. I wanna talk to him about his podcast. I wanna I definitely wanna talk to him about some tunes, you know, and take some deep dives on some tunes uh, that have been impactful to him. I'd like to do a podcast with him, an episode of the Bayshed podcast with him on it where we do that. I think that would be a lot of fun. 
Uh, if you are enjoying the Bay Shed podcast, please hit subscribe wherever you are listening to it. Leave a comment. Tell everybody you know about it. <laughs> you know, because I'm that shameless. You know, not not shameless enough to annoy Lee Sklar at the airport, but uh, shameless enough to ask you guys to share. Uh, <laughs> that's all I got for this one, folks. Uh, as always, thank you so much for listening, and I will catch you on the next one in a minute.